located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Mark Meckler. He is a constitutional activist who co-founded several important grassroots organizations, including Convention of States Actions, Citizens for Self-Governance, and Tea Party Patriots. Uh, welcome, Mr. Meckler. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be with you, Mark. Well, I have you on because something you wrote caught my eye. It was in Newsmax, where you write regularly, and it's called HR1, The Death of Democracy Act. That's, uh, that's, that, that, that's a strong statement. Uh, we know, though, uh, we hear things about what's going on in Washington, D.C. This is our topic for today, and we're going to rely on you to give us the scoop on what, what, what this bill threatens to do. So first of all, tell us, what is the bill? I do think it's important that we call it uh, what it actually is. You know, I, I get frustrated by these names that they throw on these bills. So <laughs> in this case... There's the innocuous sounding HR1 or S1, just numbers and letters that don't really mean anything. They call it For the People Act. And it's really anything but that. It is against the people. And that is why we call it the Death of a Democracy Act or the DDA, because I think that is an apt description. What this is, is an actual complete and total takeover of elections at the state level by the federal government. It's the exact opposite of what the founders intended, the way they intended our electoral system to work. They wanted to make sure that states basically had control of the election system so that the people in the states would have faith in the election system. And this basically turns that model on its head. I do believe, by the way, some people say it's unconstitutional. I do believe it probably is unfortunately constitutional according to the constitutional language, which allows the federal government to intercede here. I don't think this is what the founders intended, but I do think it is constitutional and it is very dangerous. You say the bill threatens to make what happened in November 2020, quote, the status quo. It will render permanent what happened there. Now, you don't say outright that illegal things happened in the election. We have indications of, of that possibility. But you, you, you don't go that far. But you do say that there were a lot of disturbing things that went on. In, in the elections, uh, some of that were licensed by the states that hadn't been done before, or at least not to the extent that they were conducted before. What were the most disturbing practices that you found taking place? Yeah, and I do want to clarify, I do think that it has been proven that illegal things took place in the elections. What I don't think has been proven is that they were enough to overturn the results of, the, of a, an election duly conducted. Maybe, maybe not. It's hard to say. To me, the greatest frustration of the 2020 election is that we really don't know, is that we've never seen a full accounting in the places where I think we need a full accounting in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Georgia and frankly, even Wisconsin and maybe in Arizona. And so I think until we see that, it's really hard to have one faith in our election system, but two, knowledge of whether or not these practices actually affected the outcome of the election. 
To give you a very specific example of something that I think is of grave concern and should be of grave concern all over the country is the idea of this huge amount of mail-in balloting. States that sent out ballots wholesale, not just to people who requested them, but to every voter, every registered voter, and sometimes beyond that. And I think this system itself is rife with opportunity for fraud. Whether, again, that fraud turned the election, I think that's difficult to say at this point, but it clearly created widespread opportunity for fraud. And one of the things we have to be very careful of in our election system is not just preventing fraud, but for preventing the perception of fraud or the opportunity for fraud, because that undermines faith in our electoral system. That's very dangerous for a democratic republic. You know, Mark, I live in Virginia now, moved out of New York City a couple of years ago, and I did receive in, gosh, I think in, uh, in August, September, I did receive from the state of Virginia an invitation. It really was an invitation to do mail-in balloting. It was, it was really implicit and encouragement. Now, my ballot station is, is two blocks from my house. I've never received an invitation to mail-in ballot before, so I, I don't see the rationale. Uh, again, if you want to say, if you want to put out in a news report, in, in, a, in a, if the government, governor wants to have a press conference, if you would like an, a mail-in ballot, that opportunity is available to you. But actually hitting every citizen in the state with, again, a, an invitation to mail-in ballot. And I've never heard of that before. Yeah, look, this is, I believe it is intended to create opportunity for fraud. We do know that that opportunity was created. People get ballots uh, that they don't, that don't belong to them, right? So that it comes to their house, they're a tenant, the last tenant's moved out. I know a lot of people that got ballots for previous tenants or previous owners of homes. In apartment buildings, large stacks of ballots left in the mailbox centers that anybody could just grab and fill out. And then along the way, what we saw is processes not in place to verify that these ballots are actually from whom they say they're from. For example, we had a huge problem in Georgia and in Pennsylvania and in Michigan, ballots being separated from the envelope. The envelope has a signature that's supposed to match the ballot. But once the ballot is separated from the envelope, you can no longer verify the ballot. Those envelopes largely destroyed in most places where they were used. And so, again, creating not necessarily fraud, but certainly opportunity for widespread fraud. Now, you say that the real problem here is here, we, we just don't know. And it is the perception, right? The, the feeling like, you know, we can't really trust what happened. Now, is it just that the powers that be simply don't, don't want to pursue this? They want to just leave it behind and move forward. And that it's not just the winners, but maybe... The establishment, you know. I mean, do you want to do you want to make this entirely a partisan, a party issue, Democrats versus Republicans, or would you would you spread the? Uh, again, I, I I hesitate to to be too accusatory, uh, but the mistrust seems to cross party lines at this point. Let me put it that way. Yeah, and I'm happy to be accusatory. Uh, <laughs> if you want to look at where a lot of the blame for this lies, and by the way, just to, to clarify, full disclosure, I'm not a Republican. I haven't been a Republican for a very long time. I'm a conservative. I used to live in California. I declined to state in California. And here in Texas, we don't declare. And so I'm not a Republican. I haven't been a Republican for about 15 years. I have fairly close to equal disdain for both the parties and the way they behave, and certainly the way they behaved around this issue. 
if you look at the states where we had the biggest problems and, and the biggest uncertainty, if you look at states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, just to name four, in all of those states, the legislatures were controlled by Republicans in both houses. So a lot of the enabling legislation that was passed to allow, for example, this universal mail-in balloting, mail-in voting, was passed by Republican legislatures. So we can point fingers, and the Republicans indeed are trying to point fingers at Democrats and claiming Democrats are responsible for all of this stuff. But I think in each of those states, and my grassroots activists all over the country will describe their frustration to you, they blame the Republicans for allowing these things to happen. H.R. 1 makes mail-in balloting the situation, that makes it permanent. Does it prevent states from restricting mail-in balloting? Does it prevent states from pushing strong voter ID laws? In fact, it does, but there's a there's an important nuance here, which is the federal government through the Constitution has authority to regulate federal elections. So they can do this in regard to congressional elections, the president, the vice president, where they can't do it is in regard to state elections. And then you slip down and you talk practicality instead of constitutionality. And the question is, are the states actually going to hold two separate elections with two separate sets of rules? And I think in for the most case, that's going to be very difficult, if not impossible it's financially difficult. It will double the expense close uh, or close to double the expense of elections. And so I think likely it does prohibit uh, the, uh, the using of voter ID in federal elections. It does uh, make universal mail-in balloting mandatory in federal elections. Likely that's going to find its way into state elections as well. What does it say about the prospect of non-citizens voting? Anything? Yeah, well, I mean, what it does is it says we're going to send every resident a ballot. And so when when you say residents, what you're referring to is anybody who lives within the state. And that applies to people who are legally in the state as well as people who are illegally in the country. And so we absolutely are going to be putting ballots, according to this legislation, in the hands of people who are illegally in the country. And with the lack of verification of who a voter actually is, I think we're going to see, we already do see, uh, voting by illegal residents of the United States. The bill mentions something that you mentioned in your article entitled the, quote, Commission to Protect Democratic Institutions. What what is that going to be? It sounds, to me, it sounds like a very high-minded, ideal, necessary intervention in political corruption. What do you think? (laughs) <laughs> I think what they're doing is preserving Democrat institutions, not Democratic institutions. This is intended to go after the idea of gerrymandering and redistricting and and to try to set it up in a way that benefits Democrats. And this is important to Democrats right now because one of the highlights of the 2020 election for people who are conservative or Republicans is that Republicans did very well at the state level all over the country. This is something actually that a lot of people forget. I don't believe that Republicans lost a single congressional seat, did they? Did, did, there was no loss of a Republican, and they gained several. Yeah, and it, it actually is even better than you make it sound, which it's hard to believe how well it went. We now have the slimmest majority of a majority party in Congress uh, in over 100 years. It's incredible. It's only a five-seat majority for the Democrats. Every seat that was deemed leans Democrat prior to the election went Republican. I mean, it was just an absolute sweep for the Republicans. More importantly, in my opinion, is at the state level and the state legislatures, I believe it's 126 seats flipped 
from Democrat to Republican. This is despite hundreds of millions of dollars put into the state legislative races by Democrats because they were worried about redistricting. 2021 is a redistricting year. After the census, every 10 years we go around, we redistrict. And the party who is in control of the legislature in a given state is in charge of redistricting, and it usually advantages them. It is absolutely a partisan process. It's always been so. And so now the Democrats are trying to push back against that process because they are in so much trouble in the states. It looks to me, based on the, the outcome of this last election and what we're going to see out of redistricting, if the Democrats can't do something to try to, quote unquote, fix that, then they're going to lose a whole bunch of seats. They're very likely to lose the House by a large majority. This is what Republicans are expecting. Isn't that correct? 2022 is going to be very good for, for the Republicans. You know, I think it is numerically. I think we have to be very cautious. I would say Republicans are the party of seizing defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> and so I, I wouldn't put it past them to do it this time. But if you just look at it straight by the numbers, it's going to be a good year for Republicans in the House of Representatives in 22. You mentioned that the commission, this proposed commission, is going to threaten the, ju the judicial system. How will it do so? Well, in, you know, part of it is in the redistricting process. And so and in the in the reworking our judicial system, one of the one of the things that most people don't realize that we should be very aware of, and I think Republicans should take advantage of, is Congress's control of our judicial system. Congress actually has literally absolute control of our judicial system. If you look at the judiciary according to the Constitution, it consists of a Supreme Court and such ancillary courts as Congress shall deem, and that means Congress decides what the courts are what their jurisdiction is, what they can rule on, how many courts there are. But, you know, we take this for granted. We're so used to, in our lifetimes anyway, in my lifetime, the district court system, the appellate court system, it's all just fixed. It's as if it's fixed in the Constitution, but it's not. And the Democrats intend to tweak that system to their advantage at this point. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. As someone with experience with Tea Party, organizations, we know how the Obama administration used the IRS to go after uh, not nonprofit institutions that, that were associated with the Tea Party. You note that this commission and the bill will target nonprofits once again. How will that happen? In my opinion, this is the most insidious and possibly the most dangerous part of the bill. If you look at what happened to the Tea Party movement post-2010, the movement had an incredible impact on the 2010 elections, largest swing in Congress between parties since 1938, largely because of the Tea Party movement. And then the IRS targeted the Tea Party movement. And the way they targeted it, for those who don't know, is they just made it very difficult for the Tea Party movement to get what is called charitable status, 501c3 or 501c4 status. They slow walked the applications. They asked unconstitutional questions, including trying to force these groups to reveal their donor lists. Ultimately, a lot of those Tea Party groups ceased to exist. Our organization actually filed or funded the filing of a class action lawsuit against the IRS. IRS ultimately settled that for $3.75 million. It's the only 
successful class action I'm I've ever been aware of against the IRS. Now, now, Martin, Mar, you, you say the IRS settled, the people settled. Yeah, I mean, we this paid. Is the, this that's, <laughs> this is the frustration, right? That's, there is no remedy. The the person behind all this, the IRS, Lois Lerner, walked away real nice, didn't she? Full pension, full retirement. You know, here's the one piece of that lawsuit, Mark, that most people still don't know. There is a single piece of that lawsuit still being litigated. We dismissed the entire suit after the settlement, except for this one piece. Lois Lerner was deposed for approximately eight hours. That deposition is on tape. It is under seal by order of the court, and we've not been able to get the judge to even rule on that. We filed a motion. That motion has been fully argued over three years ago. In fact, right now, we're in the process of spending upwards of $50,000 to try to get the court to unseal that, to get rid of mandamus, forcing the court. Lois Lerner's argument, by the way, her lawyer's arguments were that the American public would be so angry if they saw that deposition that there would be threats against her life. So the standard that the government wants, that people like Lois Lerner want, is if we do stuff bad enough that people would want to threaten our lives, then you can't, you're not allowed to know about that. That's right. So, That's right. So this is how this all relates to the Death of Democracy Act, which is they are going to institutionalize, make it statutory that organizations like mine, the Convention of States Action, and any other, frankly, conservative organization is really what they're after, is going to have to reveal their donor lists. What that means practically in the public sphere is it means that these woke mobs will go after these donors and will terrify them, will out them, and will intend to intimidate them against giving money ever again. There's a long history of this. That's right. And I'm really worried about that. A lot of the cancel culture began with targeting people who, for instance, uh, gave money to the traditional marriage law in California. Correct. Uh, you, you take these lists, you make them public, and you're, you're going to pay for, for, for that. And, uh, well, are the Republicans going to be... Can they make a campaign issue out of this? I mean, can they stand up... They, they don't have the votes right now if, if the Democrats hold steady. Is this, do, do you see this as a, as a campaign issue for them in 2022 and 2024? I do. I think there's something we have to be really careful of, Mark, that I want to back up for a minute onto this whole idea of donor lists and allowing donor lists to become public. We've let the left define this fight and they call it dark money. And when I ask people on the left what dark money is, Give me a definition of dark money. They can't. Right? They say it's anonymous political donations, whatever that means, right? And then I ask them, so you mean super PACs, right? And they always say yes. Uh, lawyers say yes. Politicians say yes. And then I say, well, the reality is the super PAC is the single most transparent political organization in American politics. Every donation to a super PAC is disclosed regardless of the dollar amount. So you must not mean super PACs. What do you actually mean? And they don't know. And what this really is, is this is a campaign to vilify conservative money, because what it doesn't do is it doesn't regulate money from teachers unions and public other public employee unions. And it doesn't. How about, how about Mark Zuckerberg and, and his contributions for the for the campaign? Last exactly. Fall? So all of that, yeah. this is not intended to cause those people to be exposed or abused or attacked. It's really aimed post Citizens United at conservative money. And so this is really important. We as conservatives should believe in this philosophy. Transparency is for government, privacy is for people. If you wanna make a political donation to something like this, to an organization like ours, and you want that to remain private, that should be your right. You're not a, a public official, you're not a government 
authority. You should be able to do what you want with your money privately. And so I think we need to take a very strong stand against this kind of forced disclosure. And I do think that the Republicans can make a campaign issue out of it, but only if they get the narrative right. And I worry about that because Republicans are terrible at getting the narrative right. You really want to put this episode, bad as it is, into a longer history of Washington, D.C. drawing power away from the states. Is, has, been, has, has one of the main tactics for doing that bribery, federal money going to states, and so governors, even Republican governors, are willing to, to trade, to deal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the great examples of this is the 21-year-old drinking age. You know, whether you agree with that or not, most people understand that's generally true in the states all across the country. And you would think that the states just decided to do that or somehow the federal government had authority to impose it on the states. And neither of those is true. What they did is they tied it to federal highway funds. So they would offer to pay for the construction of highways in a given state, but they would say, you're not going to get the money unless you raise your drinking age to 21 years old. I, I want you to think, well, again, whatever you think of this, remember that 18 year olds can pick up a weapon and go off to war and die for their country, but they're not allowed to have a beer. And it's, it's kind of an outrageous uh, juxtaposition. But this was enforced by the federal government through bribery, through the federal highway funds that they give to the states. And they do this all the time. States really, to be fair, are almost powerless to resist. They're always looking for money. This is the way politics works. They need more money to do more stuff. Unfortunately, that's the nature of government. So they go to the federal government and the federal government puts strings on it. And then they end up doing things that the people in the state don't really like, but they like the money. You offer a recourse for the states to fight back. You, you mentioned Article 5 of the Constitution. But you do say that, you, you said at the beginning that you really don't think H.R. 1 is unconstitutional. What will be the grounds of a legal challenge here? I think what the grounds of a legal challenge will be is that states will try to say that it is an overreach according to the original intent of the Constitution. I think it fits within the clear language. You know, there, there's a debate all the time about whether somebody is a textualist or an originalist in regard to the Constitution. As a lawyer, I call myself a contextualist. And what I mean by that is I, I'm going to read the text and try to understand what the clear text is, but I don't think we can understand unless we look at the intent. The intent uh, under this part of the Constitution was clearly not to have this sort of broad federal overreach. So I think that's going to be the fight around which this is organized legally. But then there is a secondary fight. And that fight, as you describe, is con it's convention of states. It's the idea that in Article 5 of the Constitution, we retain the power as states to call a convention of states and to propose amendments to restrain federal power. And in this case, we actually could, in a convention, propose an amendment to remove power over elections from the federal government and to vest that power almost exclusively in the states. How many states have Republican governors? Is it 30? 30? Well, there's a trifecta of Republican legislatures and governors. 24 are the trifecta, I believe. It might be 26. Well, that have all three houses. There are 31 state legislatures with both houses controlled by Republicans, some of them obviously with Democrat governors like Michigan and, and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Those are three states, Republican House and Senate, but a Democrat governor. And so we do have, we meaning people who are more conservative or lean to the right, have a definite advantage in the states all across the country. That's why we see the Convention of States initiative moving forward so rapidly. It's passed in 15 states. It's pending in 21 states this year. We'll pass in probably six to 10 more states this year. 
How many states need to sign on to a convention for it to happen? It takes 34 states, and we will pass the halfway mark here shortly. Okay, so two-thirds. Correct. Okay. You note that some states have successfully challenged federal policies in the past uh, on, on some of these similar grounds, at least. What are some good examples of that? So there's a thing called, it's a federal overreach, and it's where the federal government uses essentially, it's not clear, but too much leverage in the withholding of funds or trying to force states to do things that they shouldn't be able to do. So it's where the federal government isn't actually passing legislation and saying you must comply with this, but they essentially muscle or overuse their muscle on the states. And so there there are examples of this, but to be honest with you, they're pretty rare. This is a pretty high bar to go to to the Supreme Court and say that the federal government has overreached. And the reason that it's rare is because the states generally go along with it. Right. So they can push back once in a while. But generally speaking, as we discussed earlier, the states go along with it. I think this is a stretch. I just don't think this is the proper approach for pushing back against federal overreach. Do you think that there is something of a a socialization problem whereby a member of the House or Senate who may be a Republican, may be conservative, but leaves the home state, lives in Washington, D.C., can be there for 15, 20 years, and starts to have more of a federal D.C. orientation toward toward legislation than home state orientation. I, I know that's fuzzy, but uh, does does that does that kind of acculturation happen? A D.C. you know Potomac <laughs> Beltway uh, horizon sets in. Yeah, and I think it happens pretty quickly for a lot of people. And I think it's built into the structure. And one of the things that happens for a lot of legislators when they go to Washington, D.C., is they get there. And one of the first things that happens is they get contacted by the speaker's office. Let's say they're in the House of Representatives or the the minority leader's office. And they'll say, hey, Mark, you're new here to Washington, D.C. You just got elected. You really need a chief of staff that knows his way around. And you say, yeah, it's overwhelming. I'm confused. And they say, I've got just the man or woman for you. And they introduce you to a chief of staff that knows their way around the hill, knows all the rules, knows all the committee chairs. And you think, man, I've just been rescued because I have no idea what's going on. But that that person who's now your chief of staff, they're likely not from your state. They actually don't even care about your state. They don't really care about you or your success. Their loyalty is to the leadership in the House or the Senate where they come from. That's how they got their job with your office as your chief of staff. And they're looking to climb the ladder like anybody in a job, honestly. And they want to become staff to a committee or staff to somebody in leadership. And so there's an entire structure of employment built into Washington, D.C. that takes people away from the interest of their state and turns them towards the interests of Washington, D.C. And then is there a whole machinery of federal workers, sort of unelected federal officials that Trump called them the swamp? that they actually kind of reinforce the, the logistics, the, uh, just, just the, way, the way the wheels turn, that, again, people who have no loyalty to the home state at all, but, but to that, that, that party leadership, which is all about D.C. Does that, is the swamp a factor here as well? <laughs> Look, I think the swamp is is not only a factor, I actually think it's the factor in Washington, D.C. In the Tea Party days in 2010, after the Republicans took control of the House, I honestly believed everything was going to change radically. 
I didn't understand how deep the swamp was. We now call it the deep state. I didn't understand how deeply entrenched the deep state was. Some of it, I, I want your listeners to understand, we say it in a way that it's evil or nefarious, and there is some of that. But I think mostly it's just human nature. In other words, if, if you think about a guy like me, I'm a Tea Party guy, I'm a limited government kind of a guy. What I want is less jobs in Washington, D.C. I'd like to see the federal government cut down dramatically. I'd like to see a bunch of these agencies closed down, wiped out, you know, turn those buildings into museums, level them, turn them into parks, whatever. Well, so if you think about what I'm saying on a human level, not a political level, but on a human level, there are human beings employed in those agencies. And they actually like their jobs and they have pensions and they have families and kids that are in college or whatever, just like my kids. And so for them, the preservation of D.C. is self-preservation. And so I think it's important that we humanize it. Yeah. And that's not to say it changes my position at all, but we have to understand it on a human level. It's not always nefarious. There's some of that, but mostly it's just human nature. Yeah, I think I think we, we, we avoid, you know, the conspiratorial element. These people may not even be that organized. Yep. <laughs> they just do operate out of just sort of real basic human incentives about, you know, job security and, and you know, where their kids are going to go to school, thing, things like this. Um, I, I would add a, a broader historical feature in the decay of state loyalty, state identification. You know, I, I did a book on, on, a, on something, a riot that happened in Atlanta in 1906, and that, that was a year there was a governor's race. And one thing that struck me as I was doing all the research was in Georgia at the turn of the century, the governor's race actually got more attention than the presidential race. It was a much more local orientation to what politics can do. Now, this is before the IRS existed. <laughs> this is before all the entitlement programs. Uh, can we go back to a stronger state identity with, you know, some of the actions of, of, say, Governor DeSantis in Florida. More governors taking sort of an adversarial posture toward, toward D.C. Is, is, do you have any hope of that happening? I do. I think we can. Not only I think we can, and Convention of States, that's part of, that's the main goal, right? Take the power away from D.C. and give it back to the states. So not only do I think we can, but I think we must. I think this is the only solution for keeping the country together. The country is becoming a powder keg. It's divided roughly 50-50. People really, really don't like each other. And I think we have some fantastical notion, which is untrue, that at some point this country was united. If you go all the way back to the founding, the, the colonies didn't like each other. There was sectarian distrust among different Christ, uh, uh, sects of Christianity. And they came together because they had a greater common enemy, which was England. And then they came back together after they won the war against England, and they still disliked each other so much they formed the Articles of a Confederation, a government that could not work because it had no power. And then they came back together in 1787 in convention, and we have this idea they all linked arms, sang kumbaya, and came up with a constitution. But that's not true. The reality is they hated each other. They mistrusted each other. They accused each other. They yelled at each other. And out of that conflict came this beautiful thing called federalism. The idea that we could unite around a limited set of things, enumerated powers that we wanted the federal government to do, but we didn't trust each other enough to do any more than that. And the rest of that was intended to be left to the states. That's the natural state of affairs for the United States of America. And a lot of our problems today are actually specifically caused 
because so much power resides in D.C. We could get along a lot better if we would put that power back out to the states and let the states be the individual sovereign entities they were always intended to be. The piece is called H.R. 1, The Death of Democracy Act. It is at Newsmax by Mark Meckler. Thank you for joining us, sir. Great to be with you, Mark. Love to come back anytime. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. 